Friendship You Love, the podcast of the series of the graphic novel of the album, where I get to crap on about anything I like. Hello. I'd like to talk to you about poetry. Literary work in which the expression of feelings and ideas is given intensity by the use of distinctive style and rhythm. A characteristic of much poetry, though not a requirement of it, is the rhyme. The use of matching vowel sounds, which we call assonance, or in the case of consonants, matching consonant sounds. Rhyming is a pretty weird way to speak when you think about it, but it's a convention that's lasted as long as the spoken word itself. And in the popular music vernacular, it's taken on a whole new level of importance thanks to the rise of hip-hop. Modern hip-hop is so obsessed by the rhyme that I find it sometimes distracting. The hip-hop artist will shove so many rhymes in a line, the technical term is inline rhyming, that I begin to think, hang on, you've got nothing to actually say, have you? Rhyming adds a theatrical flavour to an otherwise humdrum string of words, imbues it with a certain rhythm. The trick, I feel, the magician's sleight of hand, is to make the rhyming word sound indispensably part of the line, like you meant it all along, to choose that word and only that word would do. You didn't just bung it in because it rhymed. You don't get that impression when you're in the hands of a true poet. With a true poet, the words seem to take on a luxurious, undulating cadence. They no longer seem like mere words. They have colour and form. They're word paintings. That's the mark of a true poet. Then there's me. I like to see myself as a post-poet. I have developed a technique which I feel is revolutionary and dispenses with the restrictive conventions of traditional rhyming poetry. I achieve this by combining a radical approach to content with a highly unusual rhyme scheme. The rhyme scheme is the technical term for the form in which the rhyme manifests itself. It's best expressed with the use of alphabet letters, A, B, C, and so on. So, the most popular rhyme scheme is AABB. In other words, the first two lines end with a common sound, the next two lines end with a different common sound, and so on. Let me give you an example. I once came across a cat who wore an unusual hat. He took it off with a meow, which is all very well, but how? That's your A-A-B-B. There's a myriad of possible rhyme schemes. A-B-A-B, A-B-C-B, A-A-B-B-A, and so on. A-B-A-C-A-B. There's another one. Abacab. Oh, now I get it. That's why Genesis called their song Abacab. It must be written with that rhyming scheme. What genius. Except it isn't. Let's examine the opening verse. Look up on the wall, there on the floor... Under the pillow, behind the door, there's a crack in the mirror. Somewhere there's a hole in a window pane. Do you think I'm to blame? Tell me, do you think I'm to blame? 
Well, that's actually A-A-B-C-C-C. It's not Abacab, it's Abacab. So let's rearrange it a little. So it is Abacab. Look up on the wall, there on the floor. Somewhere there's a hole in a window pane. Under the pillow, behind the door, there's a crack in the mirror. Do you think I'm a bore? Tell me, do you think I'm to blame? That's Abacab. Still doesn't make much sense. My favourite rhyme scheme takes a somewhat more minimalist approach to your A-A-B-Bs or your A-B-A-B or your A-B-A-C-A-B. It's A-A-A-A-A-A-A-A. Thrilling stuff, don't you think? But that's not all. I like to combine this rhyme scheme with what I call a fluid approach to word construction. If a word doesn't rhyme, change it so it fucking well does. And so we come to this week's episode of Only the Shit You Love and the song My Horn Plays La Cucaracha. Or as I like to call it in the song, La Cucaracha. Not only in this song do I employ the A-A-A-A-A-A-A-A-A rhyme scheme to produce the effect of a boxer pummeling away at you with unrelenting jabs until he wins by a technical knockout, I also, very subtly, hardly noticeably, slip in some fluid word construction. For instance, in the line, He may own a luxury yachta, but my horn plays la cucaracha. As you see, language is dynamic. It is mere clay on the wheel of the post-poet Potter. Here's another example of the A-A-A-A-A-A-A rhyme utilising fluid word construction in a song by Root. I I get a little emo When my alarm clock screamo Wakes me from my dreamo And cause I've not one keno I'll catch that 7.15-o Sit all day at my machine What does it all mean You may also be familiar with other such couplets in my previous contributions to the literary canon, such as Don't want to listen to Bob Dilly, I want Millie Vanilli. Or Mix a drink, help youth run a mucker. Vitamin B, help them after they chucker. Toilet ducker, take away the yucker. But DJ Trevor goes waka waka. Although I clearly got my poetic licence from some bloke Paulini knows, I feel that I don't have many contemporaries out there in the poetic landscape, except, of course, Tony Martin, who can be heard utilising the A-A-A-A-A-A-A-A-A-A technique with effortless brilliance on the track Dictator Dan. Paint a picture of the Wu-Tang Clan You can't watch George C. Scott in the Flim Flam Man You can't watch the early work of Anthony Van. You can't run a printer Kurosawa's ran. You 
can't stage a pantomime of Peter Pan. You can't claim your in-laws are from the Sudan. You can't buy a cubby house off the plan. You can't pronounce Dylan Moore and Dylan Moran. You can't have a brunch with Amistad Mopan. You can't say that last line didn't really scan. You can't make a tape of Flock of Seagulls Iran. You can't watch Peter Houston of as Charlie Chan. You can't solve a murder mystery on the GAN. You can't watch Rocky Human Romper Stomper on stand. My original inspiration for fluid word construction came from one of the great rock poets, Thin Lizzy's Phil Linnet. He was fond of the rhyme, was old Phil, in keeping with the Irish heritage of lyricism. One of my favourite Thin Lizzy tracks was the unheralded Romeo and the Lonely Girl, in which Phil sings this couplet. Oh, poor Romeo, sitting all on his ownio. At the time, as an impressionable youth, I thought, wow, Phil Linnett doesn't let anyone boss him around. The word own doesn't rhyme with Romeo. Who cares? Just change it to Onio. Years later, when I was a teacher at Croydon High School, my mentor was a chap by the name of Tex McBride, a genteel Abe Lincoln beard sporting Irishman of great wisdom and liltingly imparted life coaching. One day when I was by myself in the staff room, Tex came in and said, Damien, sitting on your Onio. At which point I realised that Onio was actually part of everyday Irish vernacular, completely unknown to us other English speakers halfway across the world. It was too late to stop now, though. The damage had been done. Thanks to Phil Linnett and Thin Lizzy, tailoring words to fit the cut of the lyric became part of my art. And now you're suffering for it. We're going to start this happy vibes right from the root. Thin Lizzy were my favourite band for a few mid to late teenage years. I was still an outer suburban, hard rock loving, unsophisticate. But Thin Lizzy, under the bravado, wrote particularly melodic songs and their guitarists favoured melody over ridiculous showing off. Lizzy utilised the famed twin guitar attack which we briefly attempted in Kestrel Hawk, only that was more of a twin guitar surrender. Thin Lizzy were, in a barely noticeable sense, a sign that my musical tastes were broadening somewhat from the adolescent Led Zeppelin phase. Kestrel Hawk tried to keep pace, but a lot of things had happened to my musical ears in my last years of school. I even briefly flirted with the idea of being a genius rock impresario. Inspired by the fabulous Calester College socials, which I rhapsodised about in the previous podcast, in Year 11 at school, I convinced my fellow students to let me organise the Merda College Senior School Social. I campaigned on the premise that, unlike all the other anonymous school socials featuring a mere mobile DJ, I would organise a big-name, countdown-appearing famous band, thus simultaneously striking a blow for live rock music over the tyranny of disco, compelling the girls to come for miles and putting us on the map for having that amazing school social you would never forget. Well, I certainly organised a social that you would never forget. I managed to convince my fellow students to pay an exorbitant ticket price, 
so we could cover the band, PA, lights, refreshments, hall and so on. I was a tiny bit unpopular with the Year 12s, but I talked it up big and they coughed up. With a budget of $350, which, trust me, was a lot of money back then, I made the call to Australia's number one band booking agency, Premier Artists, and spoke to a man by the name of Frank Stavala. Now, you might think that sounds like some character from a Scorsese film. I'm not at liberty to comment, but I can tell you one story about Frank Stavala, which I heard from my future manager, Michael Lynch. When Michael was new to the business, he managed a band called Sacred Cowboys. On one particular night, he was confronted by a venue owner who not only refused to pay the band, but brandished a baseball bat to outline his point. Frank Stavala happened to drop by to check out the band. When Michael mentioned this unpleasant development, Frank walked straight into the venue office and within a minute had come out with a wad of cash. That was Frank Stavala. And here was a 16-year-old school kid trying to do business with him. $350 doesn't get you much choice, said Frank. I can give you stars. The mighty rock, the mighty roll. Once it's got you, won't let go. It don't matter what you do. The mighty rock's coming after you, yeah. It was hardly cold chisel, but it would have to do. Stars had been on Countdown with their latest single, Mighty Rock, and their country rock and boogie would, I figured, be good to get the girls up dancing. And I'd been true to my word, organised us a proper, as-seen-on-TV, well-known band. So far, so good. And at this point, I made my fatal business decision. The school put me under pressure to organise it quickly before the next school term, Getting a decent venue on a decent night proved a little harder than I'd imagined. I ended up booking the St Joseph's Primary School Hall on a Tuesday night in the middle of winter, in the middle of the school holidays. Did I think this through? Probably not. We sent out our invites far and wide. We targeted every girls' school for miles. Mix, Prados, Jews. We were non-denominational in our comprehensive bid to fill the hall with pretty ladies. But worryingly, our invites only reached a lot of the schools in the last few days of term, and maybe some arrived after that. Then, in week one of the school holidays, Frank Stavala rang the school. Wanted to speak to that kid who booked the bands. That kid, me, didn't actually live at the school, funnily enough, and so Frank Stavala did business with septuagenarian priest Father McFall. The drummer of stars was sick, he said, so they had to pull out. But because Frank didn't want to do wrong by us, he'd asked another band to lower their fee especially to do the show. What a nice man, thought Father McFall. In blissful ignorance, I happened to call the school on the day of the social to find out that our advertised band Stars wouldn't be appearing tonight and instead we were getting taste. Taste had been on Countdown too, but none of us liked them. 
They were a sort of preening glam hard rock band with a teeny bopper baiting single called Tickle Your Fancy. They also had prog rock pretensions, which by 1977 were no longer washing with me. I was in a pretty despondent mood beforehand. I'd done all this work so I could be the guy who booked taste? But that was only half my dilemma. The busloads of beautiful girls never showed. Hell, half the kids from my school didn't even bother to turn up. There was me and my mates, a few of their girlfriends and a small group of boys who clearly didn't get the memo. At least taste showed up, although we, and undoubtedly they, probably wished they hadn't. A Tuesday night in the middle of winter playing to an empty hall, that's what being on Countdown gets you. We all stood outside as if in protest at the back door smoking. Inside, Taste were clearly not. Taste's drummer was the subsequently highly reputed session drummer Virgil Donati. He had a ridiculous big drum kit and played a drum solo that, I kid you not, would have gone for 30 minutes. I have a Virgil Donati story from an engineer who did a session with him. He asked Virgil to play simple time, like boom, whack, boom, boom, whack, boom, whack, boom, boom, whack. So Virgil started going boom, whack, boom, boom, whack. But pretty soon it started getting more and more rococo. Boom, whack, a boom, boom, whack, a ticket, a boom, whack, a ticket, a boom, whack, a and so on. No, Virgil, just keep it simple. No grace notes, no flams, no anticipatory cymbal swishes. Just play time, please. Off he went again. Boom, whack, a boom, boom, whack, a tick, the boom, whack, the dig, the back, the boom, 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 back, the back, and so on. He couldn't do it. Couldn't play simple time. Too many drum lessons leads to jazz fusion. So, while the beautiful private school girls of Melbourne were relaxing in their chalets up at Mount Hotham, here we were at a semi-deserted primary school hall in Springvale with Virgil doing the world's longest drum solo to nobody while I stood out the back, teeth chattering in the fog, blowing smoke rings and wanting to disappear. And that was the end of my career as a rock impresario. After that... I was persona non grata with the year 12s. There goes the guy who ripped us off and made my girlfriend think I'm a loser. Time heals, though. The year 12s left, we became year 12s, boss of the school, and I somehow managed to inveigle my way back onto the social committee, mind you, with significantly less power. And I had to put the choice of entertainment to a vote. So... Who did we get as our marquee entertainment drawcard? We got a mobile DJ. Lots of girls showed up and everyone had a great time. Funny about that. Still, my position on the social committee meant that both years I was able to sneak Kestrel Hawk on the bottom of the bill. What's absolute power if you can't use it to be absolutely corrupt? These were the dying embers for Kestrel Hawk, however. By 1978, my musical tastes were expanding at a ferocious rate, the idea of playing long-haired, guitar-solo-heavy rock started to feel a bit like a train I wanted to hop off. What was that shit going on over there on the other platforms? 
I was emerging from my teenage cocoon. I was off to the disco. Only the bits I love. A few episodes ago, I played the weird sound effect that opens Led Zeppelin's fourth album, a harbinger of the mystically bombastic delights to follow. This week, we have another of my favourite album opening sound effects. It's the sound of somebody walking. That ain't just anybody walking. That's Brian Ferry hopping in his car off to take his place on Love's Wheel of Fortune in Roxy Music's Love is the Drug. When I hear those footsteps, I see a briskly twilit London evening, a tuxedo-clad ferry, immaculately polished shoes crunching across the washed white pebbles of his St John's Wood driveway, hopping into his E-type jag and speeding off in a cloud of petrol-guzzling exhaust to cavort with Twiggy and Jean Shrimpton at the Ad Lib or the Bag of Nails or the Scotch of St James. Me? I was off to an all-ages disco at the Good Shepherd Primary School Hall or the Brandon Park Fire Station Hall or the 1221 in Baldwin. The wonderful, unknowable, impossible lure of girls was the reason. So, like Ferry, I took my place on the dance floor and... Well, our paths probably diverged somewhat from that point. But I was dancing, or attempting to dance, to disco music. And even though disco music was so far from the kind of music that I liked, it seemed to be music for mums and dads played by people in conservative suits. Plus, there was all that ban the DJ, keep music live bullshit. I mean, I even had a sticker on my drum kit. But there I was, dancing and unable to admit to myself that I was quite enjoying the experience. All the same, it was seeping into my musical consciousness, lying dormant like some kind of new viral strain to reappear years later. These all-ages discos were, as you can imagine, a long way from cool. The DJs didn't give a shit. They played disco, but also Cold Chisel, The Eagles, Bob Marley, Bonnie Tyler, Meatloaf, Rocky Horror, whatever the kids yelled out for. And they even slipped in vestiges of that other recent musical revolution, punk. By this stage, punk had already sprouted and withered in the fashionable haunts of New York and London. It had taken mere moments to catch on here in Melbourne with private school kids who lived in St Kilda, but Melbourne's outer suburbs, that's much further away. Punk was a weak Morse code, a faltering, staticky transmission from another planet. To get to punk, you worked your way backwards from music that had been influenced by punk. The so-called new wave of The Police, Lena Lovitch, The Cars. Plus, there was Blondie's Heart of Glass, which was a punk band playing disco, and set off a little stealth bomb in my brain. The two things weren't mutually exclusive. In fact, they were better when combined. While that was percolating away, I also heard Ian Jury and, of course, Elvis Costello. This was anti-Virgil Donati music. Amazingly good musicians playing really simply. And on top of that, the best lyrics I'd ever heard. Seriously good lyrics 
that weren't all mystical and faux-poetic but were literate and even at times funny. A gauntlet absolutely tossed in my face. Mind you, these blokes weren't good enough to write in the A-A-A-A-A-A-A rhyming scheme, were they? I'll see you next week. Listening to Only the Shit You Love, the podcast. If you want to see the series or buy the music, go to campsite.bio forward slash Damien Cow DC. See you next time. <laughs>